Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at Zechariah chapters 7 and 8, and this episode is entitled An Oasis of Joy. For today's sermon, we've got to go all the way back 3,400 years ago to a time when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. Now, we read in Exodus that they were enslaved for 10 generations, which is about 400 years, until God heard their cry and liberated them with a mighty and miraculous hand. Now, God's messenger was a man named Moses, and Moses led the Israelites into the wilderness. And while in the wilderness, God gave Moses and the Israelites instructions for how to build a house where God could meet humanity. This house was a tent that was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was divided into two rooms, the bigger entrance room, which was the holy place, and the smaller, more interior room known as the most holy place. Now, in the most holy place was a box with two angels on top, which was known as the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you've seen the documentary Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know exactly what it looks like. You know what I'm saying? Now, what most Christians don't understand is that the Ark was a very important symbol within all of Judaism. It was the throne where God resided when God wanted to interact with humankind. And so this house, the tabernacle, represented the intersection of where God and humanity interacted. In Exodus chapter 25, God tells Moses, There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two angels that are on the Ark of the Covenant, I will deliver to you all my commands for the Israelites. So Moses and the Israelites begin to build the tabernacle, and when it is completed, we read in Exodus chapter 40, that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We then turn the page to Leviticus chapter 1 and we read about God speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting and God then gives Israel a bunch of rules as found in Leviticus. Now you think about what this tent, this tabernacle represented to people who were wandering around in the wilderness, well, it represented something quite powerful. It was the idea that no matter where we wander to, God will go with us. And when we set up camp and set up this tabernacle, we can encounter the divine in this space. So God met humankind in a tent for 400 years. That time came to an end when a man named Saul, around 1000 BCE, decided to unite the 12 tribes of Israel into the nation of Israel and became their first king. Now Saul was violently overthrown by a man named David, who many consider to be Israel's greatest king. And then David's son Solomon took the throne after David's death, and he looked at this tabernacle and said, we are no longer a nomadic people. And he commissioned the temple, which was the permanent structure of what the tabernacle originally was. Now, the temple was built at the highest point of Jerusalem, and it was a daunting structure. 
We don't necessarily know what exactly it looked like. We can piece together from clues from the biblical text. But we do know that it was covered from floor to ceiling in gold, and it was an opulent and magnificent temple. Now, the floor plan was the same. There were two rooms, the holy place and then the most holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant went inside the most holy place. Now, to give you an idea of how extra King Solomon was, not only were there two angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant, but he crafted two more angels to stand above the Ark of the Covenant. And these two angels standing above the other angels were 15 feet tall and covered in gold. So all of a sudden, the theology shifts in this story. It used to be that God will be with us wherever we go. And now that this temple has a foundation and is built with stone, the theological idea that comes forward is that God will always be here, right here with us. And so as long as we have this house, we know that God will be in Jerusalem. Now, this temple stood for about 400 years until the year 586 BCE, when an empire to the east known as Babylon attacked Jerusalem and flattened the city, including the temple. Now, this was rather stunning because the people of Jerusalem assumed that God would do whatever it took to keep God's house standing. And so when God's house begins to fall to the Babylonians, there is an existential cry that comes forth from the people of Jerusalem because this destruction of the temple is challenging how powerful God actually is. Now, a few years later, the prophet Ezekiel would interpret this event by writing in chapter 10 of his prophecy, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. So Ezekiel receives a vision in which he says, oh, no, 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 God is still powerful. God just abandoned us. So I tell you this because it's important for you to understand the emotional devastation that occurred when the people of Jerusalem saw the temple being destroyed. This destruction called into question everything. What would you do if someone physically destroyed your entire religion? The closest parallel I can come up with for Christians in America today is imagine an invader attacked our shores and then destroyed every copy of the Bible in the country and also erased all online databases that held the Bible. Even then, I'm not sure that is the same as the emotional devastation that the people of Jerusalem faced so many years ago. So after their temples destroyed, the Babylonians take most of the survivors and drag them across the desert and force them to live in exile in Babylon. Now, the whole purpose of this strategy is assimilation, and they are hoping that the Jewish way of life and Jewish culture will die out. And there's this real period of fear that overtakes the Jewish people as they're living in exile. They wonder if this is the end of their way of life. So in the midst of that exile, they begin to cry out to God, how long, O Lord, will you allow us to languish in exile? Now, a prophet who was writing at the time was a man named Jeremiah, and he gave a very concrete answer. He said, God will allow us to languish 
for 70 years. And people took that quite literally. However, 47 years into this 70-year punishment, something rather unexpected happened. Another power to the further east, known as Persia, rose up and attacked the Babylonians, conquered them at Babylon, discovered the Jewish people living in exile and said, where are you guys from? The Jewish people said, we are from Jerusalem. And so Persia allowed them to return home as long as they paid taxes to the Persian empire. So the Jewish people crossed the desert and arrived back in Jerusalem to find their city in ruins. And they began the long, hard road of reconstruction. 19 years later, or in other words, punishment year 66 out of 70, the people of Jerusalem are still rebuilding the city and it is going slower and it is more difficult than they expected. And they started looking around and saying, it's been 66 years. Shouldn't God be a little farther along in our restoration process? Now, in response to that, Zechariah writes his prophecy that we've been studying for the month of July. And it's here that he presents his thesis, which is found in verse 3 of chapter 1. Zechariah writes, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. In other words, for Zechariah, God's restoration is conditional. And it requires the people of Jerusalem to fundamentally change who they are to receive the restoration. Now, this was a new idea during Zechariah's time because most people thought they would just receive God's restoration. But Zechariah said, no, we have to work for it day in and day out. 22 months after he wrote those words, in punishment year 68 out of 70, two men approached Zechariah, a man named Sherazar and another man named Regem Melech. They asked Zechariah, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done for nearly 70 years? Now, these two men asked Zechariah this question because they have been participating in a ritual for seven decades. And the ritual is a grieving ritual, which is meant to commemorate the grief they feel that the temple fell nearly 70 years ago. So now that they are nearing the completion of the reconstruction of the temple, they are asking Zechariah if they have to continue to grieve the old temple shortly after the new temple has been consecrated. Now you can imagine that we would assume that Zechariah's answer is going to be, of course not. Once we complete this new temple, we don't have to grieve the old temple anymore. But Zechariah doesn't do that. Instead, he asks them a question. He asks, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth month and in the seventh for those 70 years, was it for God that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink only for yourselves? To which I picture Sherazar and Regan Melech saying, uh, so that's a no then? <laughs> but Zechariah then goes on a long monologue that lasts for two chapters. In verse 9 of chapter 7, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. 
After talking about social justice, I picture Sherazar and Regimelech saying, um, what? He then continues in chapter 8 by saying, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts shall be called the holy mountain. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Even though it seems impossible to the remnant of this people in these days, should it also seem impossible to me? I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to live in Jerusalem. They shall be my people. And at this point, you're probably wondering if he's ever going to answer Sherazar and Regimelech's question. And after over a chapter of monologuing, Zechariah finally answers their question in verse 19 of chapter 8. He says the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So Sherazar and Regimelech say, should we continue these fasting rituals where we grieve the destruction of the temple? And the short answer to their question is no. The time for grieving is over. And after finally answering their question, Zechariah talks about how people will come from far and wide to worship together in Jerusalem. And chapter 8 comes to a close. Now, I think there are three things that we can learn from this bizarre exchange between Sherazar, Regimelech, and Zechariah. The first thing has to do with the history and when we consider the destruction of the temple, we have to recognize that this destruction is ultimately a story about a national trauma. Babylon attacked Jerusalem and soldiers died defending the city and a religion was destroyed. So when Sherazar and Regimelech are asking, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done for nearly 70 years? They are asking about how this nation has coped with this national trauma and what it looks like going forward now that the trauma has been restored and redeemed. This national trauma makes me think of the coronavirus in 2020. Because in the United States of America, we have buried over 138,000 people who have died because of this virus. 138,000. You see, this story that we are living through right now is the story of a national trauma. And what's interesting about this is that we feel this trauma on a very personal level. I know this because I speak to several of you over the phone and I hear your stories and I hear what you're going through in the midst of this pandemic. And I have to tell you that we as a congregation are experiencing a lot of anxiety. We all feel it, don't we? We have economic concerns, health concerns, inequality concerns. We're facing all of these things and we all are living with this low level hum of anxiety. And the way that we cope with this, the ritual that we have is we have a weekly worship service where we come together 
and share our anxieties and fears with each other and try to talk about what we do in the midst of these anxieties and fears. But what's terrible about this pandemic is the fact that we can't come together in our religious ritual and process these things together. Not only that, but when you think about the worship service, you think about how people sit down and they listen to a pastor like me, and I'm usually a few feet raised above everybody else. (laughs) And I think it assures people when I'm raised a few feet above everybody else because they feel like I'm closer to God if I'm a little higher than they are. (laughs) But as we talk about what it's like for me to give these sermons to you over podcasts and through the internet streams. Um, I have to tell you that it's a little bit daunting for me personally because I don't feel like I've got it all figured out when it comes to the anxieties that I'm experiencing. I don't feel like I have it all figured out when it comes to processing this national trauma in each of our individual homes. I am reminded of comedian Bo Burnham's words when in his Netflix special, Make Happy, he's doing this joke about Pringles cans and Chipotle burritos, and then he breaks a song down and starts to sing the following words when he talks about what it's like to perform in people. He says, come and laugh at the skinny kid with the steadily declining mental health and laugh as he attempts to give you what he cannot give himself. Man, that line just really sticks with me because I don't consider myself to be the model of mental health that you should aspire to be. I don't have any cheat codes. I'm not really sure what to do with my anxiety. But I hope that what we can still provide, even though we can't meet in person, is that this church can help provide space for you to grieve that there is a space here where you feel like you don't have to plaster on a smile in order to belong. And when I read about Sherazar and Regamelech asking about this ritual of grieving, I hope that church can provide that for you in the middle of this national trauma. And when we talk about three things that we can learn from this bizarre answer from Zechariah to this very simple question, I think the first thing is, that we as humans need to grieve. We need to have space in our lives to grieve the anxiety that we are feeling. We have all canceled plans and rearranged priorities here in 2020. Well, we should make sure that we have space some way, somehow, for us to grieve that which we have lost. And notice that Zechariah doesn't say to Sherazar and Regamelech, he doesn't say, hey, that was all a waste of time. Why would we do those grieving rituals at all? No, he says there was a time for that, but now it's time for a festival of joy. And so maybe you've lost someone to this virus to which I am deeply sorry to you and your family for that. There has to be space for you to grieve that. Otherwise, we've skipped over the ritual that will help us process our anxiety. Which brings us to the second thing that we can learn. Sherazar and Regamelech ask if they need to continue fasting and mourning in the fifth month as they have done for 70 years. Now the answer that we expect Zechariah to give 
is that Zechariah will say, sure, once the new temple's completed, then you can stop that grieving ritual for the old temple. But instead, Zechariah talks about the importance of not oppressing the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor, about rendering true judgments, and about recommitting ourselves to justice. And here, Zechariah is saying this in the shadow of a temple that is nearing completion at the end of these 70 years. And it's almost like he's saying, I mean, the temple's fine. It's fine. But I don't think it's the point. There's something much more important going on here. And when we consider the temple and what it represents, it represents the very presence of God within the city of Jerusalem. And when that was destroyed, there was this sense that God abandoned them. And when you look at the fact that the people went into exile for 47 years and returned, and they were still talking about God and what it will be like when God is with them and how God was with them in exile, the paradox that's revealed at the heart of this theology is that even when God abandons us, God is still with us. And when we consider what that is like in America today, it's like when Christians go to church or they go to pastors and they ask the pastor a question. Pastor, I'm feeling spiritually dry. I feel further from God than I ever have before. What can I do to reconnect with God? Well, the church in America will respond in one of three ways. They will say, make sure you attend church every week. Make sure you read your Bible every day. And make sure that you develop a robust prayer life. I think that if Zechariah heard pastors saying that today, he would object and say, I mean, those practices are fine. I'm not against those practices, but those practices aren't really the point. That's not really what we're here to do. And instead, I think that if we went to Zechariah and asked him, Zechariah, I'm feeling distant from God. Can you give me any advice? I don't think Zechariah would recommend Bible, church, or prayer. I think Zechariah instead would say, where is something unjust happening? Go to that place where the injustice is happening, where God clearly doesn't have a presence, and invest yourself in justice to making that thing right. And I'm sure you will find God there. Now, when we think about what this has to do with the pandemic in America today, this pandemic is exposing injustices in our public health. It's exposing racial injustices and the fact that people of color are dying at disproportionate rates. It's exposing economic injustices and the fact that some people are having their health care taken away because they've lost their job. It's revealing just how we treat those who take care of us, particularly doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers, and how we care about how much they are protected in the middle of this pandemic. And so I think that Zechariah would say, where is an injustice happening? Oh, it's happening all around you. Work to make that right, and you will find God in the process. And so when we talk about the three things that we can learn from this bizarre exchange between Zechariah and Sherezer and Rechimelech, the first is that we need to create space to grieve. And the second is 
we need to pursue justice. Which brings us to the third thing that we should learn from this story. Sherazar and Regan Melek ask Zechariah if they need to continue grieving, and Zechariah says no. You know what we should do? We should have a bunch of parties. And you can imagine their skepticism, and they said, shouldn't we finish the temple before we start throwing parties? And Zechariah says, why wait until the temple is finished? There's plenty to celebrate right now. This reminds me of a story that happened not too long ago, just about two weeks ago, actually. And this story uh, unfolded on a Thursday evening when I got a text message from a friend who had a friend who had a friend who was getting married on Saturday and they were looking for an officiant. So my friend was asking me if I'd be interested in officiating this wedding. And I thought in my head, there's no way I'm going to officiate this wedding because I am terrified of catching this virus. But I called the couple anyway, and the couple explained to me what was going on. They had planned their wedding for the spring of 2020, but had to postpone it due to COVID-19. They then planned it for the summer, but they had to postpone it again. They then planned it for the fall. They had to postpone it again. And after that, they said, you know what? We just want to get married. Why don't we get married this Saturday with just our immediate family and an officiant? And so they decided on Tuesday to get married on Saturday, and on Thursday they were looking for an officiant, and after hearing that story, I decided to do it. And so I show up to this wedding venue, it's a backyard at their house, um, I show up not knowing anyone, I walk in, and they tell me, the family tells me that the couple is upstairs getting ready, um, and they'll be down any moment. And a few minutes before this wedding starts, it dawns on me that I'm going to meet this couple for the very first time at the altar. Now, obviously, I've spoken with them over the phone, but to be able to meet them in person for the first time at the altar is a rather unique experience. So the word began to spread that this couple was ready. Everyone took their places six feet apart from each other. There was only 12 people there. And in walks the first bride and in walks the second bride. And my heart does that thing that only happens at weddings. When a couple enters their wedding venue filled with hope, joy, and love, and your heart responds by saying, this is good. And so the first bride walked in and I said, hi, are you Karen? And Karen said, yes. And then the second bride walked in and I said, you must be Marissa. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> and we started talking and I got to tell their story and we got to watch them exchange the vows that they had written for each other. And then there was a kiss and everyone cheered and I pronounced them wife and wife and they walked out of the venue and everybody was just so happy. And it was just it's just a great wedding. And I realized how much I have missed weddings since this pandemic has hit. I mean, there's something about this ceremony that we take for granted that is like this oasis of joy. I mean, when Karen and Marissa cut their cake, it was a white cake on the outside, but it was layered to look like a pride flag. And everybody was like, oh, you got us. 
<laughs> it was so good. And, you know, they were just so happy to be married. They wanted to be married on that day because they were tired of postponing. They wanted to be married so they could start their life together. And their joy was contagious. And here I was in the midst of this pandemic, suddenly enjoying myself. And it was this oasis of joy that brought me back to how much we have missed out on these rituals of joy. We've lost them in our daily practices. And when I think about the third thing that we can learn from this story is that first we need to learn that we need to grieve. Then second, we need to pursue justice. But third, we need to enjoy. And I think the reason that Zechariah took so long to answer Sherazar and Regimelech's question was because he wanted them to understand that, yes, we're going to party, but we can't abandon justice and just skip to the party. In other words, we commit a sin whenever we pursue joy at the expense of justice. And we are living through a massive amount of healthcare injustice right now. And so, yes, we've had to reimagine our rituals of joy, but let's remember those rituals of joy are extremely important. A ritual of joy that my wife and I participate in regularly is we go to Caprice in downtown Redlands. It's our favorite restaurant. We've had anniversaries there. We've had um, birthdays there. Like a lot of our favorite date nights in Redlands have been at Caprice. And it's a bummer when we can't go to Caprice as easily as we used to. However, we've ordered takeout for a couple special date nights since this pandemic began. And I will tell you, it is a fantastic ritual of joy. It has brought us back to the honor of enjoying what this life is. Another thing that happened about a month ago is my wife uh, had a birthday in June. And I asked her what she wanted to do for her birthday. And she said, really, Craig, I just want to see our friends. All right, Kimmy, well, that's the one thing we can't do right now. <laughs> or is it? Because what we planned is we planned a, uh, a progressive party where we moved Kimmy from one house to another and people sang happy birthday to her in their front yards. And, you know, I was the guy on the timer who allowed five minutes per house so that way she could talk to somebody for five minutes and then move on because, you know, I didn't want this to last for four and a half hours. But we went to so many different friends' house and they sang to her and they celebrated with her and they gave her gifts. And it was just a perfect way to reclaim joy. Another ritual of joy that we've lost is the ability to go to graduations. And my daughter graduated from kindergarten just a month ago. Now, obviously, graduating from kindergarten is not the biggest deal in the world unless you just graduated from kindergarten. So I told Maya that we couldn't have a party, but I was wondering if there's something else that she would like to do. And she said, really, I just want you and mommy and Bodhi to dress up so that we can take pictures together for graduation. Now, I will tell you, I was not excited about dressing up because dressing up when you're stuck in quarantine is just a form of punishment. But if that's what my daughter wants to do, then we're going to do it, right? And so, of course, my wife and I and my son, Bodhi, got dressed up for Maya. And immediately, she didn't want to take pictures with us because that's how parenting works. <laughs> 
But it was still a way to mark how wonderful and how beautiful this graduation was for my daughter. And so we are living through a national trauma. But we must remember that this trauma is also a story about the human spirit. And I believe the healthiest way for you and I to live with our anxieties is to be as human as possible. We need to grieve. We need to pursue justice. And we need to enjoy. May we never commit the sin of pursuing joy at the expense of justice. And may you and I find God in our tears, in our justice, and in our laughter. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.